last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Rest Is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Peston. How have you been? Good. I need to say thank you to you because I need to tell everyone this who's listening as well because you remember, um, I think it was in the last episode, we were saying every time you mention your book, you have to give me a tenner. Bust. Yeah. <laughs> You tenor. will be bust by the end of this, love. <laughs> because then when you came onto my show last week or whenever it was, you brought me 40 quid. And did it go to a good cause? Uh, it went to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I regard that as, as, a, yeah. as, as a great cause. So we've got a mixed bag again today, haven't we? What are we starting with? So we're going to start with this extraordinary investigation, groundbreaking investigation by the Competition and Markets Authority into alleged greenwashing by Unilever. That is the allegation that Unilever, when it says that its products are good for the environment, well, whether it's telling porkies or not. Yeah, we've also, we're going to give you a bit of an update on what's happening with Manchester United and the ownership structure there, because we've been waiting for a deal for weeks. With and a, it's yeah, still with a legendary billionaire. Is he the wealthiest person in Britain, Jim Radcliffe? Yeah, I think he must be name. close. But yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. And also, we're going to answer lots of your questions. I know loads of you are asking about interest rates, mortgage rates, what's happening with all of that. So we'll, we'll answer those. Uh, we've got Elon Musk. We're going to talk about what's going on with the advertising revenues. We always revenues. talk about Elon Musk. But <laughs> then he's, exactly. he's, 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 I mean, he's always supplying yeah. some sort of mad thing to discuss, isn't he? Yeah. But just tell us a little bit about what the Competition and Markets Authority have said about Unilever. What's the accusation? So this is the accusation of greenwashing. So they've basically, the Competition and Markets Authority are saying that Unilever have exaggerated claims about how sustainable or better they are for the environment. And what kind of marketing claims have they made about individual products? Yeah, so they'll say that products are sustainable or better for the environment when they have no necessarily no evidence of it. It's about the fact that they use like images on some of their products like green leaves, which they think suggests that some products are more natural than they are. Unilever are saying this is not true, they're not misleading anywhere. But it's kicked off this whole thing about greenwashing now in business. And 
you know, they're not the only company that uh, the Competition and Markets Authority are looking at, but this is the one that they've now put out and said, we are going to do a full-on investigation to see what's what, going what's on. What's your take I mean, there are lots of aspects to this. One is the responsibility of companies to not pollute as much as they traditionally polluted to take climate change seriously, to reduce their carbon emissions, to produce their plastic pollution. That's obviously a big thing. And actually, if I go back a few years, they had a boss called Paul Polman, who actually I was persuaded was really at the cutting edge of trying to make business more sustainable. Mm. It seemed to me that he was doing a good thing. So it is sort of remarkable to me that the regulator is now, in essence, accusing Unilever of a con. And the con is that consumers are essentially gulled into buying products that they wouldn't otherwise buy because of Unilever's I mean, the implication is false claims Mm. that it is doing good. I mean, first of all, I suppose an interesting question is, what is your sense of whether consumers are influenced by these claims? Yeah, well, I think on the whole, the wish to be greener, the desire to be greener is much more of a middle class thing than I think for lots of people who on the whole, look at price. But if they can look at a product and go, oh, it is also helping the environment, obviously that, you know, might influence. But I think it's all about price, to be honest. Like I remember when I was interviewing one of the CEOs of a supermarket a couple of years ago, and I was saying, you know, what couldn't you do more on plastic? And he was like, yeah, we actually could. But to be honest, not everyone's as bothered as you think. And I think more people would be upset about their products not being in plastic and the fact that they are then not fresher for longer or aren't as stable. Like we all know how annoying paper straws are. Like, I would happily give up a few trees if we could go to plastic straws again. Come on. How annoying are paper straws? I mean, if I'm completely honest with you, I find all straws annoying. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking definitely the wrong person. But my point is, I just think that, yes, obviously everyone on the whole wants to, you know, wants the environment to be something that we look after. But when it comes to the practicalities of going to a supermarket or wherever and buying stuff, you're not there thinking about, oh, I better buy this because it's greener. You're thinking, how much is the bill going to be at the end of all of this? So, look, obviously we're going through a cost of living crisis. And obviously, if you're on a low income, price is absolutely central to everything. But... I mean, you know, we've been talking about over the last few weeks the value of endorsements from celebrities or influential people for products. People buy stuff for all sorts of complex psychological reasons, including the sense, if you've got enough money, that this product is doing less harm than another product. So so I understand why the regulator is looking at this, but there is a contradiction here. I used to work with a bloke called Terry Smith. He's probably the most influential investor in the UK. I mean, he's unbelievably wealthy, having set up a business called Fundsmith. And he laid in to Unilever a couple of years ago because he said that its environmental marketing was a nonsense and was a total waste of money. And he came up with the famous phrase, what is the point of mayonnaise with a purpose? Uh, (laughs) Unilever being the the manufacturer of of Hellman's. And he wanted Unilever to get back to the basics of marketing and producing what, in many cases, are world-leading Products and it so, matters what he says because he's the fifteenth biggest shareholder in Unilever. Yeah, so, so Van Smith ha- had a long-standing um, shareholding in Unilever, and anyway, he's just as I say, he's just one of those uh, fund managers who people listen to. But the point I'm making is Smith and the Competition and Markets Authority can't both be right. If Smith is right, then Unilever is just wasting its money on all this green marketing, mm. and there is no issue 
for the Competition and Markets Authority to investigate. So there is a tension here. Yeah, there is. But I think there's change happening in Unilever, though, isn't there? Because like you say, you mentioned Paul Polman, who was the CEO, and also they had another guy who came in in 2019, Alan Dupe, and he basically come in saying, yes, Unilever does need this kind of social purpose still. And, you know, they need to stand for something more than products that make your hair shinier or your clothes whiter or your food tastier. And he he put out that big mantra about social purpose too. But since then, you've got this new guy who's come in, this Hein Schumacher who came in in July, and he's like, scrap all that. Yes, there are some brands where it is important to have the social purpose. Like I would argue like Dove has done really well with the whole thing about being for every woman and they've done loads of campaigns, which I think's worked for that brand. But then you've got all the other brands, like you say, the Hellman's or your Sif or your Marmite or, you know, things like that. Comfort. Does it matter if they don't have this uh, social purpose? Probably not. So he's now on this whole thing about actually we need to focus, get away from all of the social purpose stuff for, for a lot of the brands and also focus on the brands that are actually making them the most money because they've got something like 400 different brands, but it's only 30 of them that are bringing in 70% of the turnover. And they've started selling off some of them as well, haven't they, over the last couple of years? They've got out of margarine, for example, and that was where this company came together in the first place in the 1930s when it was the margarine union joining with Lever Brothers. And that was the start of this massive Unilever company. Yeah, I mean, they've also been, some would say, strategically challenged. They, As you probably remember, they controversially tried to buy GSK's, uh, GlaxoSmithKind's consumer business, but failed. And this is definitely a business that is under pressure from investors. There's a very well-known American activist investor called Nelson Peltz, billionaire, who's got a stake. He's now on the board. So this is definitely a business that is going through investor-induced change. But as I say, there is this related question of whether the Competition and Markets Authority is actually doing the right thing in investigating this kind of thing. I mean, historically, what the Competition Authority would look at is mergers and acquisitions. But that market is dead, partly because growth is so low. And there are quite a lot of businesses that basically look at this regulator and indeed other regulators and take the view that they are creating work for themselves, that they are straying into areas where they have absolutely no business to be. When I talk to people who run businesses, you know, and indeed investors, one of the constant refrains, and they say this about the Competition and Markets Authority, they say this about the energy regulator, uh, they say it about the media regulator, which is governments have, and this was probably a good thing, absented themselves from many of the decisions that affect the private sector by creating these regulators. But the allegation is that these regulators have become unaccountable monsters and are now straying into areas where, frankly, they have no business to be. And so to get back to where we started, there's a very interesting question about actually how stupid are we? Because Ofcom is basically saying that punters are stupid. Yeah. Right, that we'll see a claim made by we'll see a green leaf, and we'll believe everything they that, tell that's us. That's exactly what I think as well, because for years, beauty products have always gone on about you know endless youth and things like that. I don't use a product and think this is going to make me look younger. I don't know how many people out there would either. We've but we've had these like exaggerated marketing claims in all kinds of areas, not just in the environmental. So it is interesting that the CMA are focusing just on the environmental and not on all the stuff they've said for years. And empirically, what's going to be really interesting when they 
give us much more detail about this is how are they going to relate any particular marketing claim with what the business is actually doing in a granular sense. And it's going to be a really interesting investigation. And if I were a business in another area, I'd probably be a bit anxious about this because it is taking the regulator into examination of the operations of a business that is new territory, Mm. right? So looking in detail at quite what a business is doing when it comes to its environmental footprint is new. Mm, Yeah. I also wonder, do they need to do all these marketing claims anyway? Like, because aren't these brands better when they do the, you know, work with charities or whatever? I think Unilever's doing, like, did a whole pride thing with with links and they've done stuff with hygiene food banks with lots of their beauty products. So that's the stuff that would make me like a brand more is, is that kind of thing rather than what it might say on the bottle about the environment. But then maybe that's just me. Uh, they are going to trial, though. Pot noodle, pots being made of paper instead of plastic. So what do you think about the the whole move to paper? So I was in M&S the other day and they've got You're these so paper. You're so posh. And, and Is they, that where they, you get your food? Well, not always, but I was there. It is, isn't uh, it? But, uh, Which was next? But, yeah, we, we, okay, look, we can go into my shopping habits later on. You're not going <laughs> to like any of it. But anyway, they've got these paper bags now, uh, which I sort of approve of. I'd rather have a paper bag uh, to take my stuff home in, except... When I'm walking home with my dog, with my paper bag, and it starts to rain, mm. at that point, you think, oh, my God, how am I going to... You know, because let's be clear, there are some disadvantages of paper in the rain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I don't know whether they've completely thought it through. Yeah, well, see, I think there are lots of things that you say that could be better for the environment and be made from paper. But when it comes to straws, I will die on that hill of them needing to be plastic. I'm sorry to everyone out there who's going to hate me, all the environmentalists. They're going to be they're going to be outside <laughs> your home if they can find no you. No one knows where I live. Right. I think it's time for a break. When we come back from the break, we're going to be uh, giving you a quick update on what's going on at Manchester United. Every week we've been going, right, we'll talk about Manchester United this week, but we're just waiting for this deal to happen. I mean, it's the longest. It's, it is like waiting for God, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it, it will happen and we'll explain yeah. when and how off the break. Lovely. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Paston. So we've been following for ages uh, what's been going on in terms of the board level at Manchester United and whether Jim Ratcliffe is going to be part of this. You know a bit about this, don't you? Yeah. So, I mean, we've been expecting confirmation of Jim Ratcliffe's investment in Manchester United for weeks mm. now. And I've sort of been on deal alert, you know. Cause what we've does expected... deal alert look like? Is it uh, <laughs> Describe deal alert to me. This sounds exciting. It's story alert, isn't it? I mean, at any particular moment. At any particular moment. <laughs> um, as you remember when we worked together, oh, I I'm remember sort that. of on well, sort of high alert for particular events. Which may- too. basically means to everyone listening, it's when he suddenly rings you at like midnight and goes, I've got the scoop. <laughs> anyway, this... Deal is going to happen, I'm told. The reason 
that it hasn't happened yet is, I understand, just the sort of legal process that's going on in the States. As you know, the Glazer family controls Manchester United, but it is a listed business in America. And everybody says they're a very cautious family, so they're just going through the nitty-gritty of Jim Ratcliffe's investment in considerable detail. But I'm told there are no obstacles of a fundamental sort that the deal will happen. I suppose it's still possible that it'll happen before the end of the year, but time is, <laughs> as we know, running out. What I do think it will be, when we've got the final detail, it's going to be absolutely fascinating and will break new ground when it comes to not just investment in a football club, but sort of, you know, essentially how you manage any kind mm. of, of complex business. And what do I mean by that? Well, as has been widely reported, he's taking a stake of about 25% in the business for a cost of $1.3 billion, roughly. But uh, Jim Radcliffe, somebody you both you and I know a bit, yeah. he's never a passive investor. No. Right? If he's putting that kind of money into a, a business, even though he's worth billions and billions, it's still a lot of money, $1.3 He wants control. And as I understand it, he will get control of the football side of the business. But two of the Glazers, Joel and Avi, will continue to run the so-called business side of the business, right? So it will be his responsibility, Jim Ratcliffe, if, you know, as when this deal goes through, to sort out the performance of a team, a team that's not been played particularly well, uh, particularly if you watch their performance yeah. in the Champions League. So, you know, there's a job to turn this club round in terms of its, its football performance. That will be his job. But if they're running the business, as it were, who makes the decision about what the budget is for players, who makes the decision about investment in training facilities? Who makes the decision about... Well, I assume he will make the decision about whether Ten Hag, the manager, stays. But at some point, they may well a new manager. Who makes the decision about how you find the manager, what you pay them? Because, you know, the, the difference between what you might call operational performance and business performance, operational performance, that's in this case being football and business being the finances, well, they are inextricably linked. So this is only yeah. going to work as a relationship if he somehow gets a really close and cooperative relationship with the Glazers. I think if you're a, if you're a Man United supporter, which I'm not, famously, but if you're a Man United supporter, you might be a bit nervous about all of this. On the other side, and we've talked about, and we're not going to go into detail about this now, we, you know, as and when the deal is announced, we will talk much more about Jim Radcliffe. I mean, he is, by UK standards, a remarkably successful investor manager, yeah. isn't he? And he loves a good British brand that he can turn around, doesn't he? So, you know, he's, he's, he's got his fingers and loads of pies through his Ineos company now. You know, he's got obviously like the petrochemicals business, but also loads of consumer businesses now. So he's got, he's moved into the fast moving uh, consumer goods arena with his hygienics business. They've also got Bell Staff, which a lot of people don't know. This iconic, what started off as a, a motorcycle jackets fashion brands they, they've got that and they turned that around they've got all the kind of team Ineos the cycling business too they've got other football clubs he's obsessed with 
taking brands that he think are iconic that he thinks you know are failing like the Land Rover Defender he's brought out this Grenadier car as well of, of turning them round and, and giving them the Ineos vibe in business I know we're going to we're going to talk about uh, more about that when the deal actually happens because I've done a bit of work with Ineos in the past so know quite a bit about so, it. So, so you say much more to explore on this uh, as and when we've got the detail the other thing about Jim Ratcliffe is he's obsessed with productivity and he's yeah. particularly focused on productivity in sport and you know obviously big in cycling for example uh, he's close to Dave Brails and I'd be Dave Railsford. I'm expecting to get involved in helping him turn around or improve the performance of Man United. Brailsford has this marginal gains theory, and it's all about essentially just little incremental improvements in performance across the board. I'm certain Brailsford will come in and be asked to do a review of effectively the productivity of the team. This is a subject close to our heart. We're going to do a special podcast coming soon on productivity. Yeah, because the thing I'm obsessed with, with Ineos, is that the way they use the sports throughout the business. So, for example, there's a woman called Fran Miller, who is the CEO of their Bell Staff business, the fashion brand. But she worked for the Team Sky, which became the Ineos team. So she was, you know, she was all about cycling um, but then was brought into this fashion brand to turn it around, which which she has done. And the last time I spoke to her, she was expecting it to to break even soon, and it had been doing terribly. But again, she comes from a sports background, and that that's the big thing. There is the everyone's competitive, and everyone's obsessed with sport. Like even their graduate training scheme, the big incentive there is you'll get to do this like four hundred kilometer race in the desert if you. <laughs> If you if you do well with them, so anyway, we'll we'll go into all of this because it is a really fascinating business and how they've turned businesses around, other companies and big brands around is fascinating. But on the sport front, I just want to yeah. say, from a football point of view, as someone who lives in Newcastle, although I am a Middlesbrough fan, Newcastle in the Champions League has been incredible for the city. We're actually recording this before Newcastle's. Uh, Critical game against AC Milan tonight. Like at the minute, the hotels are all booked out. Seeing the buzz in the city, seeing what it's doing for the local economy and for the the wellness of the people who live there, the happiness must be having an impact, which must be good for the economy. So should we move on to questions? Yes. So thank you for all the questions we've had in. I'd quite like to start with one about Elon Musk that Kirsty Hamilton has sent in. So she's saying, why is Elon Musk seemingly deliberately riling up advertisers? Does X have a future if advertisers keep leaving? And it's quite a good time in this in terms of a question because there's been a report out in Bloomberg, which is saying it looks like that X, formerly Twitter, is going to bring in two and a half billion dollars in ad revenue this year, which is significantly down on the previous years. And ad sales make up about three quarters, if not more, of X's total revenue. So yes, this pulling of ads from companies annoyed with Elon Musk is having you know, a big impact on their finances, which is not a surprise, is it? No, it's not. And it's quite hard to see method in Musk's incredible outbursts against the big advertisers. They were outraged at what they saw as him endorsement, a sort of anti-Semitic jibe on Twitter. He then told them to F off. And he's reversed the ban on a lot of controversial people being on X as well, which has annoyed quite a lot of people. They have. And so I think what people slightly don't get about Musk is, yes, he's worth, you know, $200 billion plus, probably the wealthiest person in, in the world, but he did borrow 
to invest in or to take over Twitter. And there are debt repayments coming up. And so there is this issue around, you know, at a certain juncture, would he want to dig into his own wealth to service that debt if Twitter is incapable out of its own revenues of servicing its debt, what will happen to Twitter? It's why there are people out there speculating that, you know, Twitter could even close. I, I, uh, hate I don't it. think it will. I think, you know, you'll find some way of keeping it going. But it is a very, you know, it was a challenged business when he bought it over. As you remember, he tried to get out of it. It is an even more challenged business these days. And at the moment, you know, he's got these amazingly big, grandiose plans to turn it into a much broader digital platform, which people will use for all sorts of different kinds of transactions. No sign of that happening at the moment. And its core business is suffering. I know this is the interesting thing because obviously um, since Elon Musk took over, they've stopped publicly releasing the, the finances. He has said himself that ad revenues down by more than 50%. So He's, uh, you know, admitting that they've taken the hit on that. But interestingly, their big thing is it's not Twitter anymore. It's X. And we're not measuring ourselves by the old Twitter metrics. But it hasn't really changed. So apart from the blue tick and paying for that, there's not masses of difference. So I have no idea what it, they're thinking in terms of what their metrics are going to be now in the future. So there's a big issue about brand safety here. These companies, you know, your Disney's, your Airbnb's, all of these massive brands don't want to be associated with what's being allowed and what's being said on X. And there was uh, a leaked document to the New York Times. They've seen a spreadsheet which shows that 200 ad units of companies now have either halted or are considering pulling their deals, which suggests that the financial hit is still going to be felt. You know, this isn't it in terms of people who've pulled now. There's going to be more as it goes on. And actually, I'm just going to digress for a second because I had a really fascinating conversation with a very senior sort of business leader just the other day about what goes wrong when brands are associated with issues that upset groups of people. So, you know, in the case of, of Musk, we talked about his apparent, which he's, he's now saying he wasn't endorsing this anti-Semitic trope, but he was seen as doing that. And he says all sorts of other outrageous things. But I was talking to this guy about the experience of a very, very big supermarket brand called Carrefour in the Middle East. Now, Carrefour is franchised in the Middle East. It's a huge French supermarket, hypermarket operation. And it has a franchise in Israel, and it then has a franchise in other Arab countries. The holder of the franchise in Israel very publicly gave support to the Israeli Defence Force in the form of sort of money and food and packages and just very public support. Um, this utterly outraged consumers in other Middle Eastern countries who, many of whom, are now boycotting Carrefour in those Middle Eastern countries, even though the franchise is not held by this Israeli entrepreneur. And sales in Carrefour are down, I'm told by this individual who's intimately connected with them, by 20 30% in many of these countries, wow. which is a disaster. Yeah. So it just shows you the power of a brand being associated. This is not a value judgment by me about you know whether this guy should have been helping the Israeli Defence Force or not, but there are millions of people in the Arab world yeah. who were outraged by that, and they are voting 
with their wallets that is fascinating. and not shopping. So it just shows you how careful companies have to be in these fraught times. Yeah. I think we should come back to franchising as well. It's such an interesting uh, area of business, isn't it? I'm looking at franchising the slime business. We've got... Can't escape yeah. from slime. <laughs> Not when I'm with Steph McGovern. <laughs> Should we um, have a look at uh, some of the other questions we've got? Then we've had loads about what's happening with interest rates, mortgage rates, and the like. So should we take a couple of them? I think we've got here, first of all, I'll merge a few. So thank you for sending these in. So we've got Simon Waters who says. Are we likely to see a decrease in interest rates next year? Vicky Luke is also asking what's happening with mortgage rates. Will we ever see the lower rates again? And there's been some quite interesting stats out this week, haven't they, about how people are struggling with mortgage arrears. That's hit a six-year yeah, so high. So, so you're right. Mortgage arrears are up at a six-year high. Not a completely unsurprising. In fact, some people would say it's sort of astonishing that, that actually arrears aren't even higher given what's, you know, in the case of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, what they're paying for their mortgages has gone up three, fourfold. And most economists with a knowledge of this area would expect those arrears, those problems for the banks to go Obviously, problems for customers then translate into problems for banks to get to get even worse. Now, the backdrop, which is really important at the moment, is the economy is slowing down. On the day that we're recording this, we have seen a 0.3% contraction of national income GDP for October, which is a bigger shrinkage than we had been expecting. And so normally, when you get an economic slowdown of that sort, it means inflationary pressures are seen to be less. And we are recording this before the Bank of England's interest rate decision, but I do not expect the Bank of England in that interest rate decision to put up the base rate, the bank rate, the one that they control. And the really interesting question is whether they will endorse what markets are now saying, which is markets are discounting through the price of various financial assets. They are discounting three interest rate cuts next year, starting in June. And they are expecting, in terms of that bank rate, the one controlled by the Bank of England, a 0.75 percentage point fall. Um, in June in, next year? No, no. There would be yeah. three cuts of 0.25% starting in June in mm, the course of next year. Right. So if markets are right, we are over the worst in terms of rises in interest rates and rises in mortgage rates. Mortgage deals are getting slightly better value, let's be clear, because banks, you know, in the end, the bank rate matters, but banks also price their mortgages on the basis of what is happening in yeah. the marketplace, in the city, with all manner of financial instruments discounting a fall in interest rates. There will be, in coming weeks and months, fixed rate deals at lower rates. Now, the really interesting question, and it's too early to make a judgment on this, is how much further those mortgage rates will come down and how fast they'll come down. As you know, I am somebody who believes we are not going to get back any time over the next few years to the kind of incredibly cheap deals that we saw before the great spike. No, because we've talked about all the problems of cheap credit as well, haven't we? So that's not necessarily a bad thing if we don't go back to but, one point whatever percent mortgage rates. I mean, I think there are going to be a lot of people out there shouting and screaming at you I know you they there. are. Uh, so, <laughs> so not only am I annoyed anyway, the environmentalists, but anyone with an expensive mortgage, Let's come back to the debate about whether higher interest rates are good. I 
tend to agree with you that actually the long years of all, almost zero interest rates did actually a lot of harm. And we can explain why in a later episode. So having some degree of higher interest rates is a good thing. But actually, and I have to say that a lot of young people may well shout and scream when I say this, but actually weirdly, particularly for younger people, higher interest rates over the long term are definitely a good thing because uh, it gives you the opportunity to earn more over the long term, as you save. And if you want to know more about this, guess where you can find out more about it? In Bust! Because I've talked quite a lot about why interest rates at a slightly higher level are actually particularly good for younger people over the long term in that marvellous book, which is obviously there should available be a little noise as, that as, goes as, the perfect, as the perfect nah. Christmas present. But anyway, you know, my own view at the moment is if bank rate settles over the next few years, let's say, I think it's likely, near a 4%, you're getting mortgage rates at that kind of level for years, for some years to come. There was an interesting report out this week as well from um, UK Finance, which was looking at what they think is going to happen with mortgage lending. And they, they're saying that they think next year mortgage lending is actually going to fall by about 8%. And then it'll pick up again in, in 2025. And they're saying that actually part of the reason, as you say, that the rates have been coming down a little bit is because people are thinking that, you know, the banks are thinking next year they're going to come down. And there's a not very positive reason for that, which yeah. is the economy is is not growing at the yeah. moment. It's bumping along at the but bottom. But also they want to try and re-energise the mortgage market a bit as well, don't they? Which is why they've been cutting things. Because what they're saying is that people who are refinancing at the moment are staying with their lender uh, and just transfer into another deal with them. So they don't have to go through the affordability tests because a lot of them wouldn't pass these affordability tests. So, you know, when we're talking about mortgage arrears, that is expected to go up again next year because people refinancing are just clinging on to their mortgages, but having these huge increases in rates. And that, you know, it's going to be a problem because there's lots of people who can't afford them. So the, in this report, they were saying they're expecting mortgage arrears to go up from just over a 100,000 by the end of this year to a just near 130,000 by the end of 2024. So that is a problem that's going to continue as well, isn't it? Um, now, there's another interesting question here, which is about a wealth tax from Cass. And it's saying, discuss how a wealth tax could be practically implemented. Are you in favour of a wealth tax? It depends how it was implement implemented. So this is, it's kind of like a broad-based tax of ownership of net wealth, isn't it? A wealth tax. So, Well, there are different ways of cutting yeah. it. You could, you could change the way that we tax people's homes, yeah. right? Because many would say that, you know, council tax is, an, is a wealth tax, and it's, yeah. but it's an incredibly inefficient, and some would say unfair. And out of date wealth as well, tax the very bands. Out, so you could look at, yeah. you, could, you could come up with more of a measure of the all the wealth assets that people own and put a tax yeah. on that. I mean, personally, I think it is important to look seriously at a wealth tax because so much of the unfairness in the economy, so much of the inequality in the economy are to do with the unfair allocation of wealth. And in particular, people of my generation own pretty much all the wealth and younger people are finding it incredibly difficult yeah. to accumulate assets. And so we do need to find a way of correcting that unfairness and part of the way to do that, it would be through a wealth tax. The problem, of course, is that you come across vast numbers of people who have wealth but no income, right? So if all your wealth, if you're an older person yeah. and all your wealth is in your house but you've retired and then there's a stonking tax put on the value of your house, is it fair 
to force that person effectively to sell their house in order to pay the tax. And many people would say, A, it's not fair, and B, if you were any kind of political party uh, proposing that, you would immediately lose all those votes, and those people do vote. And at that point, you can't win a general election, which is one of the reasons why, of course, Labour is not at the moment embracing that kind of idea. But there are ways around this. The ways around this are effectively... Uh, actually, I talked about this in a previous book. That, you know, one of the, oh, you know, my God. Yeah, I know. It's, it, it, this <laughs> it's is 20 the, quid for a mention of a book <laughs> that's right. not even right. been published this year. Well, I mean, WTF, if you remember it. So there you go, it's 20 yeah. quid for you. Anyway, still... That's but, what the still, book's still, called. Still, he, he wasn't just <laughs> randomly still, swearing at me. Still relevant. Uh, anyway, what you could do is, you know, with a wealth tax, is you can turn the tax uh, liability into an IOU I mean, so you pay it when you die. Which you pay it when you die, basically. And and, and the advantage of the government of that is you levy the tax and you know that the money is coming in. And actually, at that point, you can borrow against that IOU at incredibly cheap rates. And so it it would generate for any particular government a, a, a significant amount of income. Now, the political problems, given how unpopular with some people any kind of tax after death is inheritance taxes we know is something that the government is looking at reforming and there are some Tory MPs who want to abolish it altogether of course these are politically contentious areas but the notion that uh, and this is one of the things that's wrong with the economy that there is this massive incentive to you know accumulate wealth in the form of property rather than investing in productive assets is another reason why we're just not as successful and productive a, a, a country as we should be. Do you know what? I just You've just reminded me, talking about whether there's um, whether there should be, a, you pay the tax on death, is this story that came out recently about the Duchy of Lancaster. You know, this is this huge land and property estate that King Charles essentially owns. And the fact that they've collected tens of millions of pounds in recent years from people who've died in the particular areas where this land is owned by the Duchy of Lancaster. So because these people have died without any blood relatives being that they've been able to pass the money on, it's just gone straight into King Charles's uh, coffers, which is mad, isn't it? And and similarly, the Duchy of Cornwall, it's the same for that part of the country as well. These people who pop their clogs and then the money's gone to the king. I'd love at some point actually to come back and look at the whole economic case for the royal family. It's a there's a very Ooh, yeah. it's a very interesting subject which we should come back yes. to. And then finally, just on this wealth tax issue, I am somebody who believes that we need to e- equalise capital gains taxes and income taxes because at the moment there is a ridiculous incentive for people to you know speculate and invest rather than again generate proper income, and it's a massive tax dodge mm. for the for the rich again so- that they basically convert income into capital to pay a much lower tax rate. and it, So it's an unfairness which needs to be addressed. Okay, dokie. Right, should we wrap things up? We've covered quite a lot We've there. covered a bit of ground, thanks yeah. to the brilliant questions of our amazing mm. listeners. Yeah, thank you very much for those. Uh, Restismoney at gmail.com if you want to send, uh, send one in or just search for us on social media as well. Uh, but that's it from us. Bye-bye. See you soon. 